We are continuing our, um, our series in the book of Isaiah this morning, and we are going to be going through chapters 19 and 20. And so if you would, I believe it's on page 580 of the Bible in front of you. Would you please stand with me if you're able to, uh, to read God's word? Isaiah 19 and 20. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols, and of the sorcerers, and of the mediums, and of the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. And the workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land, will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zon are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what Yahweh of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools. The princess of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. Yahweh has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that Yahweh of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that Yahweh of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to Yahweh, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. 
In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did, walking naked and barefoot. Then Yahweh said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we? How shall we escape? This is the word of the Lord. You, you may be seated as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the respite of your church, of your word, and of our time together under it. Please help us let your word shape us and guide us. Amen. All right, so we continue in Isaiah, and we're still in the section of the book where Isaiah turns his attention towards the nations. Um, he's gone through oracles to Babylon, Assyria, and Moab, and last week was Damascus, and our passage this morning is Isaiah's fifth oracle, all about Egypt. And I want to make sure that we're all clear on why we are focusing on Egypt this morning. I want us to see the role that Egypt plays, because I think that even in the text, we see signs that the Egyptians themselves wrestle with that question. Why is this happening to us? What do we have to do with any of this? And so we're covering two chapters, and we're going to cover them in three sections, um, which you should be able to see fairly clearly in the way your Bible structures the passage. You see chapter 19 is split between 1 to 15 and 16 to 25, and then the third section is chapter 20. And simply put, the headings of the three sections are the sin, the forgiveness of sin, and the consequence of sin. So chapter 19, 1 to 15, the sin, Isaiah's oracle concerning Egypt, which will actually break up into three subpoints. Then chapter 19, 16 to 25, the forgiveness of sin, Isaiah's vision for um, the post-exile resolution, and just an astounding promise of redemption for Egypt and for all the nations. And then we'll look at chapter 20, the consequence of sin, Isaiah's warning of the immediate season of trial for Egypt, because sin has consequences. So now the advocates of the 20-minute sermon will have to forgive me. I just first want to take uh, a quick step back to look at the role that Egypt plays in the Bible. 
uh, they have a complicated role. Sometimes they're a refuge. Sometimes they're oppressors. Sometimes they're recipient of uh, plagues and punishment. So let's just take a quick minute to see the role that Egypt plays in the full arc of the Bible narrative. Put as succinctly as possible, the story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation is Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the universe, everything in it. He creates man and woman, and they live with God in perfect communion until the fall. Genesis 3, the serpent introduces sin into the relationship, which destroys the communion between God and man and woman. Man and woman are cast out into the sin-filled world. But the Bible doesn't end at Genesis 3. There is a plan for redemption, which is Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 20, the plan to restore that communion between God and man and woman, which starts with a promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent and will usher in the new creation, Revelation 21, 22 when all will be made new and all will be restored without sin in perfect communion with God. Okay, so how does Egypt fit into all of this? They're clearly part of the redemption story, but as a secondary character, right? They're more prominent than Damascus that we saw last week, but let's call it Egypt is a recurring secondary character in the redemption story of the Bible. It makes his first important appearance late in Genesis. Joseph ends up in Egypt when his brothers sell him into slavery, and he thrives rather unexpectedly in Egypt and grows in stature and influence to the point where he can save his brothers, and they all end up in Egypt where they all thrive rather unexpectedly and grow in stature and influence to the point where they become a threat to the leadership of Egypt. And Egypt puts them into slavery. You see, the beauty of the Bible story arcs is just undefeated. God saves them out of this slavery in the Exodus. And so out of Egypt, a new nation is born. Israel is birthed out of the parted waters. Egypt was the nation that felt the birth pains of Israel's birth in the plagues. I guess you could think of Egypt as the womb. It's a bit weird, I know. It's a bit complicated, but let's just see if by the end of this sermon that context helps this passage in any way at all. Let's start section one, the sin. I mentioned we'll break up this into three subsections, past, present, and future. Verse one to four, we put our faith in the past, who we used to be, where we came from. Verse five to 10, we put our faith in the present, our current circumstances. And verse 11 to 15, we put our faith in the future, our own plans for the future. So as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, we have spoken about Isaiah's immediate contemporary geopolitical situation that Judah finds itself in. And Pastor James did a good recap last week. Under the threat of an aggressive and expansionist Assyrian empire, the northern kingdom 
of Israel has formed an alliance with Damascus, which we talked about last week, and requested the southern half of Israel post-breakup, the kingdom of Judah, join their alliance. But they refused, and instead, they formed an alliance with Egypt. And this is our first sub-point. We put our faith in the past, who we were, where we came from. Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah and telling them that because they have turned their backs on God, they're going to be taken into exile out of the land that God had granted them and into Assyria. Rather than turn to God in repentance, Judah looks to their own strategic, political, diplomatic capabilities and try to broker themselves a deal to keep themselves safe. You see, Judah sees the enemy coming, Assyria. They understand the threat. And their instinct is to run back to what they know, run back to where they came from. They go running back to Egypt that kept them in slavery, from which they were delivered in the Exodus. They've actually been pining for Egypt pretty much ever since they left. Uh, An example in Numbers, Numbers verse 14, they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Sure, they were in bondage, but those Egyptians, they knew how to live. Life in Egypt was alluring. Egypt is self-reliant, confident, successful, powerful, influential. Egypt doesn't owe anything to anyone. Now, similarly, the weak, Christians have been freed from the bondage of sin, we pine for our sin. Sin is alluring. We get seduced by its sweet promises that it never intends to fulfill. So we long to go back to our bondage, to run back to Egypt, to the comfort of thinking we're self-sufficient, to the approval of our non-Christian friends and co-workers, to the excitement of all that the world has to offer. So we allow the lie that we are giving up more than we are gaining to take hold. Like Lot's wife, we look back longingly at what we've left behind, back to who we were before we came to faith, before we knew any better. We turn to our former fleshly desires all the time, desperately wanting to believe their lies or even willfully blinding ourselves to their track record of failure. In Isaiah's fifth oracle, he's going to remind God's people where they came from. In verses 1 to 4, Isaiah starts to tell us what Judah can expect of their former hosts, of the land they've been saved from once before. Egypt's idols will tremble, their hearts will melt, they'll turn on each other in desperation, and no matter who they turn to for wisdom, they'll come up empty, and they will not be able to avoid their fate. They're in for a rough ride under an evil ruler, and history records that they will be taken over by the Ethiopians. They were ruthless. We see that uh, in chapter 20, that's why they lump Egypt and Cush together, as Pastor James noted last week. We have been warned, do not put your faith in who you once were. For we were all children of wrath, living in the passions of our flesh. But by grace, through faith, 
we were made alive together with Christ, saved from death. Do not look back. Do not turn to sin to protect you from condemnation. Do not look to the past for future salvation. In verses 5 to 10, God exposes another thing we ought not put our faith in, the present, our current circumstances. This is our second sub-point. Egypt is a prized land. There's no argument there. Affluent, powerful, with a strong economy. And the single greatest advantage of Egypt is the Nile River. It's a crown jewel. Almost every aspect of life in Egypt depended on the river. So when Isaiah says in verse 6 that the Nile will dry up, you have to think through those consequences. Consequences to farming with no irrigation, to nutrition with no fish, no water to drink, to their major industry like the textile industry, where linen makers no longer have any flax or cotton for thread. Transportation, I mean just the movement of goods and people even to their culture with no reeds for papyrus, the whole country will grind to a halt. They're done without the Nile. I would say they're dead in the water, but they don't have the water for that. The Nile is a critical lifeline that literally brings life to the desert. It's an absolute treasure, a miracle, a beauty of creation. At 6,650 kilometers in length, it's easily the longest river in Africa, and in the world, only second to the Amazon by a little bit. The Nile's drainage basin covers 11 countries. Its delta into the Mediterranean Sea is one of the largest in the world at 240 kilometers from east to west. It's a totally undeserved gift to the Egyptians. They didn't build it. They're powerless to maintain it. If the Nile is powerful and consequential, how powerful and consequential is the one that keeps it flowing, the one that keeps it stocked with fish, the one who created it? He's the one the Egyptians should be putting their faith in, not the river, which they literally deified, by the way. But this is how the world thinks. Those who do not put their faith in Christ put their faith in their current circumstances, their bank accounts, their careers, their standing in the community. As Christians, we should not be tempted by those unreliable trappings because we know that whatever God has granted us, he can just as easily take away, especially if he believes it is taking hold of our heart if we're inclined to worship the provision rather than the provider, the creation rather than the creator, if we're inclined to believe that we've achieved any of this on our own merit, then we should actually pray that God remove these things from our lives because they've become nothing more than a stumbling block to our faith. Let us pray with Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We should not look back to who we once were, nor should we trust what we currently have. Now in verse 11 through to 15, we're reminded of 
One last thing, like the Egyptians, we should not put our faith in. Ourselves, our own wisdom, our plans for the future. That's our third sub-point. It's put rather bluntly in verse 11. Our wisest counselors give stupid counsel. Now, it's hard to argue. I think that just like in the text, we too see that our leaders have become fools. They're deluded and make our country stagger as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. You could quibble with me. I'm open to it. Maybe we haven't reached this point quite yet. Maybe God hasn't completely mingled within us a spirit of confusion. But most of us will admit we're at least well on our way. In this section, we see Egypt's wise men who cannot figure out what's going on at all. They're staggering around unaware of what is going to happen or even why any of this is happening to them and what they can do about it. Now, as we discussed earlier, Egypt plays a complicated role as a secondary character in the entire arc of the Bible. They're not at the center of this story. In fact, they're not at the center of their own story. Our God is sovereign over the totality of the world and can use and bend superpowers like Egypt to his will in order to achieve his purposes, to advance his story, which in this case is a story of redemption of his people. It's a good reminder for us. It's very difficult for us to fathom that we are not the central character in our own life. The world tells us all the time to build our future around ourselves at the expense of all else. The world worships the self. But as a Christian, you see, if I were to write an autobiography, the central character, the hero of my autobiography would not be me. It would be Christ. And at my funeral, in my eulogy, listen up, boys, I don't want the central character to be me, but Christ. Because my life is senseless and empty when I put myself at the center of it. And my life is given purpose and fulfillment only when I put Christ at the center of my future plans. It's the only way that my life can be redeemed. In verse 15, there's an interesting expression that we've seen before. There will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. We saw it back in chapter 9. It's an expression that conveys totality. There's nothing from head to tail, palm branch, which is very high, to reed, which is very low, from high to low. You might say there's nothing from east to west that will stop this from happening to Egypt. I just take a moment to note it because I find it interesting that the expression of the two extremes to convey the totality is reflected in the arc of the history of God's people itself, in the inclusion of the two historic enemies of Israel, Egypt and Assyria. 
The arc of God's people's story is from the exodus out of Egypt into the exile into Assyria. This is representative of the totality of Israel's story. Their failure to properly worship God throughout the totality of their history. In relying on their own wisdom to make plans in preparation for an uncertain future, God's people decide to go back to submission to Egypt to avoid submission to Assyria. They're willing to undo everything God has done since the Exodus. They're willing to give it all away. And when we as Christians make plans for our future based on our own abilities, when we make ourselves the centerpiece of our own lives and leave God out of the picture, we go back to our fleshly impulses, revert back to our former selves, and we declare we are willing to undo everything God has done for us. In, or, in other words, we're willing to give away our salvation because of a new season of trial. If we could lose our salvation, we would. By failing to recognize the centrality of Jesus' role in our lives, we are essentially saying we are willing to give up our salvation. Everything that Jesus has done counts for nothing. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to be flippant. Life is hard and our trials are real. I know over the last couple of years, many of us have lost our jobs, have not known where our next mortgage payment would come from. We've seen illness take hold of loved ones. We've seen loved ones die. These are real, hard, true tests. The only thing is, if we think that any of those things are greater perils than what Jesus has saved us from at the cross, then we need to get our perspective straight. Because Jesus went to the cross to save our fickle hearts from the totality of God's wrath. Jesus took the totality of that wrath on at the cross from head to tail, from palm branch to reed, from life to death. The totality of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus to the point of death. That's what it cost him. So don't take your salvation for granted. It's precious. It's invaluable. And it's the only thing that can make our next section possible, the forgiveness of sin. This is section two. Looking at verses 16 to 25. So this is not the oracle itself. This is Isaiah cutting in with a description of what he has seen on the other side of the exile. We've noted this before, that Isaiah can be a little bit like a fussy grandma. A grandma who doesn't want her grandchildren to be too upset by the chapter that she's reading in the book to them. So she keeps flipping to the back pages to reassure the children and say, see, it says happily ever after at the end. Um, it will all work out. Isaiah refers to this as in that day. You see that familiar refrain six times throughout verses 16 to 25. And what do we see in this vision of in that day? A total reversal. Verse 17. The land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. What? <laughs> Little old Judah, why would anyone be afraid of them? 
we're told they will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Do you know what two brothers combined for the most career NHL goals? Wayne and Brent Gretzky. <laughs> you see, Egypt does not fear Judah for their contribution, with all respect to Brent Gretzky. The contribution that they fear is from their God, Yahweh. You may have heard it said that one man plus God is a supermajority. Even though Judah rejects God, God does not reject his people. So once Egypt realizes this is all happening to them because of Judah, they will fear Judah and their God. Egypt, in other words, will fear the Lord. And as we're told in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the beginning of God's redemption plan for Egypt. You see what's happening, right? Isaiah is saying to Judah, you're afraid of Assyria, so you're running to Egypt for protection. But don't you see, you're the one everyone's going to be afraid of because the Lord is on your side. Verse 18 tells us that after fearing the Lord, Egypt will turn to the Lord and they will be speaking Hebrew and will swear allegiance to Yahweh. It's all completely topsy-turvy. The city of destruction, also known as the city of the sun, the, the city of the sun god Ra, the heart of Egyptian pagan gods, will turn away from idolatry and towards Yahweh. Verse 19 tells us Egyptians are erecting an altar to Yahweh because they are worshiping and sacrificing. And God is redeeming. And God's redemption is spreading outwards from the altar at the center of the country to the pillar on the outer border of the country to encompass the totality of Egypt. And then we see this promise to Egypt in verse 20. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. While Judah fails to turn to Yahweh in their hour of need, and instead turns to Egypt, the oppressor becomes the oppressed, and Egypt turns to Yahweh. And in verse 22, we're told Yahweh hears their pleas for mercy and heals them. They're worshiping, praying, and God is disciplining and healing and redeeming. And by the end of this remarkable passage, we're told both Assyria and Egypt are worshiping Yahweh together, united under God. It's astonishing that Egypt and Assyria would do anything together. This entire passage, this whole thing is a conflict between these two warring superpowers. But first, Yahweh hears and heals Egypt, and now both of them, the old enemy and the new one, the two extremes from Egypt to Assyria, together with Israel, from head to tail, from palm branch to reed, the totality of the nations is now at peace under God's blessing. What beauty. Israel's three titles, God's people, the work of his hand, and his inheritance are now shared with her two enemies, all united under his blessing. One people, one world, one God. Isaiah gives us a vision of total redemption, which is fulfilled in Ephesians 3, 6, where Paul tells us, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what Christ accomplishes by absorbing the totality of God's wrath. We sin, we are disciplined, we are healed, we are forgiven. 
This healing and forgiveness is available to the totality of God's people around the world from east to west. No one is beyond the reach of this promise. No one is on the outside looking in. That's each and every person listening to this message right now. You're part of God's people. You're part of the work of his hand. You're part of his inheritance. Christ has conferred these titles and this blessing onto you. It is yours in Christ. Recognize your need for his headship and accept the forgiveness of the totality of your sins from great to small. They will all be forgiven. Praise God. Now let's take a look at this chapter 20. Section 3, the consequence of sin. Just because a sin is forgiven doesn't mean we don't have to live with the consequences of that sin. You can be forgiven and still have to pay for the damages. God disciplines in love and there are consequences to our sin. So we're told that chapter 20 takes place at the time when the Philistine city of Ashdod is captured. Ashdod had relied on the Egyptians to protect it and discovered the hard way that Egypt was not reliable. They abandoned them to their own fate. So Ashdod was captured by the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian army. It's at this time that Isaiah gets a message from God. And what is this message? Look at verse 2. Get naked. Get buck naked. Let it all hang out. You see, Isaiah goes a lot further in his sermon illustrations than I'm willing to go. And all God's people said, amen. (laughs) Why does Isaiah go buck naked for three whole years? To illustrate Egypt's nakedness. Basically, Egypt will be stripped as the Assyrians had a habit of doing to their prisoners of war. They paraded them their captives, naked in humiliation. And there's a lesson in there for the people of Judah. In verse 6, it's put perfectly. Look, Judah, this is what's going to happen to the ones you put your hope in. What hope do you have? Isaiah's message is loud and clear. Don't go running back to Egypt. Don't revert back to your former bondage to them. They're not reliable. They're not capable. They're not your savior. When you rely on Egypt, when you put your faith in the allure of your former self and of sin, you're exposed. You're naked. You'll be vulnerable and humiliated. You ran back to your oppressor. That was the best you could come up with. It's stupid counsel. It's a bad idea. You messed up and you're going to have to live with the consequences. It's harsh. Yet hear this. By grace, God will not leave them there, nor any of us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He will redeem our circumstances just like he did this entire international conflict. His people have made a mess of the whole situation. By their stubborn lack of faith and their misplaced belief in their own ability, in the short term, nothing will go well for them. Egypt will be stripped and humiliated. They'll be helpless to protect themselves. 
So they certainly will be in no position to protect Judah from the Assyrians. Not that anyone could ever protect God's people from God's discipline, but God alone. And yet, we know how it will all end. It's a happy ending for Assyria. It's a happy ending for Egypt. It's a happy ending for Judah and Israel. Remember, Isaiah flipped to the back pages to show us how it all ends. And so speaking of flipping pages, let's do a little bit. Because no single passage in the Bible is isolated. No passage is written in a vacuum or independently from the rest of God's story. I want to consider something that occurs in John 3. The remarkable exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a member of this nation of Israel. Jesus tells him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responds reasonably, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus spells it out. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You see, Nicodemus is right. You can't go back to where you came from and be born again. And yet that is what Israel is trying to do in our passage. They're trying to go back to Egypt, to go back to the nation that they were birthed out of. They can't do it. But Jesus does accomplish this. If you turn to Matthew 2, this is shortly after he is born. Jesus accomplishes what Judah cannot do. He accomplishes what Nicodemus was so befuddled by. He returned to Egypt to be called out of Egypt again. Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15 read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Joseph the husband of Mary, in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. That was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, this is Hosea, out of Egypt I call my son." I told you, I told you the beauty of the Bible story arcs is undefeated. Look at this. A second time, a man named Joseph goes into Egypt and brings in the lineage of the seed of the woman. And twice, that lineage emerges out of Egypt. And the second time, conclusively so. Now, Jesus, his rebirth occurs when he comes out of the tomb but what he accomplishes here for Israel is what they could not do. The same thing. Because the Bible leaves no loose ends, no arc uncomplete, no prophecy unfulfilled. Jesus fulfills every single one. So while Israel could not go back to Egypt, the Messiah would accomplish that on their behalf. So they may be born again as a new nation, no longer bound by the flesh of Israeli descent, but bound by the Holy Spirit, bound by the 
faith in Christ, a nation of Jews and Gentiles, Israel, and the totality of the world from Egypt to Assyria, one nation, one people, one God. So stop running back to Egypt, to the empty promises of this foolish world. Turn to Christ in repentance. He's quick to help us in our fight over our real enemy, sin. Don't you know how the story ends, my dear brothers and sisters? Flip to the end of the book. It's already being written. You can look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So let us crucify together with Christ our former lives. And all of our worldly temptations. And place the resurrected Christ at the center of our lives, our deliverer, that he may lead us through every trial. Because by making Christ the hero of our story, his story becomes ours. This ending becomes ours. His victory becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His resurrection becomes ours. His reward becomes ours. His inheritance becomes ours. His promise of eternal life in heaven, they all become ours. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, please help us see clearly the chains of our past bondage and help us not run back to the empty promises of that past, but help us place Christ at the center of our lives. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.